Hi, I'm Samantha B. Welcome to my podcast, Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully, you'll experience one by the end of this. Oh my God, what a week it's been. The president continues to dazzle us with his cognitive tests. He both started using a new tone and subsequently stopped using that new tone. And Joe Biden is pulling ahead in almost all polls, but don't get comfortable. Polls don't mean anything. Ha ha ha. There are some things that everyone can agree are good, like the world giving us more podcasts, so many podcasts, and I have decided to use mine as a space where insightful, engaged, and genuinely nice people can come and speak their mind without having to get camera ready. (gasps) Dreamy. It's also a chance for me to learn something about this crazy year and what the world will look like on the other side of it. I mean, like if we are still allowed to be part of the world. Every week on the show, I talk to someone who I really want to talk to, and I'm so excited about this week because, you know, we're stuck inside. Doesn't mean we can't have a spicy conversation. So I'm joined by my producers, Svea Baron-Reinstein and Adam Howard, who are going to fill me in on how the podcast is doing because I uh, refuse to listen to the sound of my own voice, but you should all enjoy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, What's the word on the streets? Are you getting feedback? We are, we're, and we're getting some really great guest suggestions. Great. So thank you to all the listeners for that. Thank um, you. I was actually surprised there's no been no backlash from the rabbit pet owner community, despite your oh. broadside. <laughs> I can continue <laughs> to talk about rabbits. I don't care for them. I actually had a lot of people tell me that they felt really seen by that. So I think oh, a lot really? of people have had similar experiences. I really appreciate that. Yeah. That's very nice. You're starting a movement. Yeah, you're really, you're really reaching the people. <laughs> They're cute in pictures yeah. and needlepoint, but in person, <laughs> oh. <laughs> we won't always start this podcast with like me grappling for compliments from the outside <laughs> world. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> we are on vacation. We're on show vacation right now. Like, what is vacation truly? But are you doing anything fun? Are you guys doing fun things? We're doing the podcast. Just well, we're <laughs> next technically question. sort of working. Yes. I'm going. We're going out of town this weekend uh, to Asbury Park, oh, which I've never been that's to. Nice. Like Springsteen country. Great. Okay. Well, I wish you Godspeed on your voyage. Stay, <laughs> stay mummified. Just keep bands of protective fabric around you at all times. <laughs> I don't know. That's bad advice. That's terrible advice. Okay. The weirdest pictures of you are going to come out of. Right. <laughs> Sam told me so. But she said I had she to fully me. bandage my body. I had to swaddle you're myself. Like, you're like that crazy doctor that Trump listens to, the demon lady. <laughs> what crazy doctor? That woman is amazing. You, what was her whole She's thing? a medical professional, She's, Adam. I love in the press conference when they asked Trump about uh-huh. it, he immediately was like, I don't know what country she's from. And like, they never asked him about the country. <laughs> he just immediately was like, she is black and I don't know, but she said something I liked. So she's good with I really me. liked her position on demon sperm. That's... <laughs> well, I don't think enough people have a position on that. Uh, Every day I learn Every day I learn Okay, we are going to take a quick break But we have Jamel Hill coming up And you're going to want to stick around after that For another round of Real or Fake So don't go away because we'll be right back But also because it is still dangerous to go outside Except for Adam who is going outside And that is confirmed 
Joining me today is Jamel Hill, a badass sports journalist who is also a popular host and writer at ESPN for over a decade and who currently drops her considerable knowledge for readers of The Atlantic. She currently hosts her own podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and was just announced as a producer on a new docuseries featuring Colin Kaepernick. She is a busy lady and she's going to teach me a lot about sports today. Hopefully, she'll coach me on how to more effectively say bye to all my haters. Thank you so much for joining me, Jamel Hill. I'll just start by asking, how are you handling this pandemic that we're in? It's been really hectic. I mean, to be honest, like there are many days where I am in my office for seven or eight straight hours. Right. Um, so it's it's kind of crazy. You have to like set little bathroom breaks in your schedule and you're like, <laughs> go eat you snack. Do. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you, you have to set not just bathroom breaks, but like you have to almost reestablish the boundaries right. because now that people are at home, I think there's a presumption that just because you're at home that you're free to talk whenever, that suddenly your free time or your you know, mental health time that you would normally need is up for grabs with everybody. And I find that to be um, a little distasteful. You know, I've had many people mm-hmm. who want to schedule Saturday and Sunday Zoom calls. And I'm like, but why? Like, why are you guys yeah, acting yes. like that the, the weekend did not go away just because of coronavirus? It's like, I need right. a break, you know? And so no. this morning is a perfect example. I, I legitimately could not sleep after 4.30 in the morning and I have no idea why. And I got mm-hmm. up and started doing some prep work uh, for one of the the two podcasts that I host. 4.30 in the morning, that's, is that an everyday thing or just today? I have been not sleeping very well for the last couple of weeks. And I'm hoping that once I go away for a few days coming up soon, that this will remedy this. What What is a retreat for you? Do you go off social media? How do you do that? Well, a uh, retreat for me usually involves beaches and wine. So <laughs> that's oh, great. Like, those are my two favorite things. Or right, beaches oh. and a wine or tequila. One of the, like either or, right? Wonderful. It's good because uh, my husband, he's got a milestone birthday coming up. And um, yeah, so we're going away from that. He has no idea where. That will be great because that'll be, you know, kind of the first vacation that we've had this year. So I'm looking forward to, you know, being able to just relax. I spend some quality time together and I'm going to pretty much as a boundary, I set a boundary that after, you know, a certain day, like I told Mm -hmm. my assistant and my publicist, like, don't, don't call me. Like somebody got to be on fire, like literally on fire. And you probably have to send me, you probably have to FaceTime me to prove that they're actually on fire. (laughs) So the answer is (laughs) no. Oh God, that sounds amazing. Mm. Okay. Well, before you go, I'm just going to ask a series of 50 very difficult questions. Oh, well, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for making me think. I appreciate this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I want to ask, we both, you and I both have the distinction of being declared untalented and having our livelihoods threatened by the president <laughs> of the United States. A special club. Wonderful. Yeah. Special club. With time and distance, how did that moment change your life? It blew it up, uh, to be right. honest. like Even even though I, w- I wasn't necessarily the average citizen in the sense that, like you, I had a high-profile position at ESPN. Mm-hmm. So people had, you know, there were a lot of people who knew I, who I was and I was on television every day. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it did. It blew up my life just in the sense that uh, suddenly it gave entry point or entryway to me being discussed in wider circles. Like, you know, right. it's nothing for me to make Fox News now. Like nothing. 
you know, they, they must have me on some somebody's notifications because right. every time or like whenever I mm-hmm. say something that they think would be for good content or, um, you know, would allow them to dig down even further into their racism. Here I come. There I am on Fox News. So, right. So um, so suddenly I'm bandied about in those circles. Um, I became a target for a lot of right wing media and right wing pundits. It 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 wasn't just that part of it. It was just I just become it came much more well known in interesting spaces, and so it just was a little bit jarring to be constantly think tanked and think pieced and all that kind of right. stuff, right? Yes. Yeah, where people are dissecting me and and trying to figure out you know who I am and what I'm about, and when they can't figure it out themselves, they just you know kind of make up a bunch of stuff or make yeah, it up exactly. So because it's their story is far more sexy and interesting than than the real story, I would say. So sure. so yeah, I mean it, it, that part was a little uh, unsettling to to some degree, and then I think it's generally just that becoming the hallmark and the reason people know know me i mean it used to be like mm-hmm. oh you you were at espn or people come up to me and want to discuss who's going to win the afc east or um is lebron better than jordan and that kind of stuff now they right. come up to me and they're just like okay let's talk about uh desegregation and the housing discrimination and okay. all these other you know let's talk about all these very serious <laughs> political issues so why don't you tell me what you think about immigration reform i'm like oh wow so mm. Okay, okay. All right. I mean, spitballing here, you know. So it's uh, right, right, it's, uh, right. So that part is is also different. The type of people who now want to talk to me. In in a way, though, it was it was really good. I mean, I would say in hindsight, more good came from it than bad. Right. Did you feel in some ways? Because I felt like it was like walking through fire. Like I felt like it changed me as a person but it burnished certain parts of me. So when I was kind of on the other side of that big, that big moment, I felt like cleansed and stronger, but also like I understood the world a lot better in a bad way. <laughs> well, I <laughs> was, know? I was just going to say that I was like, yeah, I got a deeper understanding of the world, a, a shittier version of it. So, yes, like, yes. so that was, yeah. Not good in many ways. Some of the remaining optimism I had is sort of destroyed. <laughs> oh, like, no. you know, um, right. So there was that part of it. And look, you you know this. You know, obviously, personally, is that the the type of people who um, support the president, who um, not everybody, but there's a significant percentage of people who. There are certain stereotypes that ring true about his supporters and Mm -hmm. they are really loud and they are angry and they are boisterous and a lot of them are racist. And so Mm -hmm. you get this onslaught of just ignorance. And while I feel as if, you know, being in the media, I've been prepared for a certain level of ignorance. And then on top of that, being a black woman in sports, definitely prepared. I've dealt right. with my share of races since I was in college. And when I first like really started to get into the, the business of journalism. So that part isn't necessarily new, but the volume mm-hmm. of it got so ridiculous after I said those things about the president, you know, I, I mean, I was getting threatened all the time. I still get threatened all the time. And right. my last basically year and a half at ESPN, I had to have them ESPN security shut off my voicemail because I was getting so many threats of people just, you know, calling and getting my voicemail and just leaving me any manner of nonsense about how I should die. And it just, it just got to be right. a lot. And so that made me for the first time 
since I've been in a in a high profile position, very cognizant about my public space because mm-hmm. while I have never had a confrontation with anybody, it made me frightened that that was just around right. the corner. That's kind of how it changes because the you know, I, and I I don't think he necessarily cares, but what everybody else should understand is that the moment the president says your name, especially this particular president, because the only thing he's good at is being divisive and, and racist. So because yes. of that, he makes you a target. You know, it's not, and I, I don't think people quite understand that. It's like he automatically, and he knows what he's doing. He's making you a target for his supporters and it does put your life in danger. I mean, it just does. So having to think about that part and worry about my own personal safety was very new and different for me. Yes. It's terrifying. It's really terrifying. Um, Okay. Well, you've asserted things obviously that are now widely held to be true think black lives matter the president is racist how do you keep yourself how do you restrain yourself from saying to your critics i told you so i i told you <laughs> like you're just coming to see this now i already sent this a long time ago believe it or not i actually wish i was wrong i do i right i, I really wish i was wrong and when i said it at the time what's funny is that I didn't really think it was that big of a deal because I thought it was so obvious. And so so obvious, it was very obvious, especially, you know, people have to understand that when I called the president a white supremacist, this was after Charlottesville, which if you had held out any belief that people were just being unnecessarily mean and that he wasn't really a racist, if you felt that way, Charlottesville should have been the exhibit a, the, Mm -hmm. the evidence beyond evidence, like, this man just called, you know, Nazis and white supremacists <laughs> yes. very fine people. He equated yeah. these two things of fighting for liberation, freedom and equality <laughs> with fighting for the right to oppress people, demean people, hurt people because they're not white and Aryan. Like he mm-hmm. thought those two things were the same. And I'm just yeah. like, OK, so if you weren't convinced, then that should have been it. And so I foolishly thought. We were all on the same page and we were not. (laughs) I was like, oh, I broke some news for people. They didn't know this. Okay. And I actually had the thought more so when it was the presidential, the Democratic presidential debates, where literally every candidate is openly calling the president a a racist and a white supremacist. I was like, well, this is something like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's sort of like it became an extension of his name, Donald Trump, white supremacist. Like it just... That's how it goes now. And so I don't feel the need to say, I told you so. I'm more frustrated by how long it took for people to accept it. And for that matter, there's still people who deny it. And I think once they understand that, you know, he is a white supremacist, it will be much easier for people to honestly to come together in many respects. It's like if, if you really don't want our country and our government to represent what this has become, then Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be that hard to get people on the same page that it's unacceptable to say some of the things that he said about other people. And for that matter, to put policy behind it, it's one thing if he's just spouting off at the mouth and no one cares or whatever, but he has weaponized his beliefs Mm -hmm. because he's president. And I don't think people get the seriousness of that. So really it's more frustration. It's not, I, again, that's why I said I, w- I really wish I wasn't right, because this is one thing right. I wanted to be 
truly wrong about and two years later say you know what that time i got the white supremacist boy was i off on that one but (laughs) that is unfortunately not the case does it surprise you when you still see articles being written about how presidential his tone is <laughs> oh yeah the change just want to like yeah change of tone i can't believe we're still seeing stories like that well oh my i can't because you know the the one thing that is very true uh historically about our country is that we have a hard time grappling with obvious truths and mm-hmm. we have run for so long one of the greatest PR campaigns in the world. I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that when we boldly proclaim ourselves to be the best country in the world, the best nation in the world, that's an affirmation. That's not actually a reality. Okay. Right. <laughs> all right. There's a difference. All right. Okay. Right. That is us trying to pump ourselves up to say like, we are the yeah. best country. We are, we are right. right. Okay. So, and, and I think because so many of us have bought into these ideals and we should of democracy and freedom and liberation, they've been intrinsically a part of what we hope to be the American ideal, that they were a hope and not a reality. And that's right. something that we need to really understand. And so because we've sold this hope so well that anytime we are confronted with the opposite, we go out of our way to prove it's 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 it can't possibly be true that means that we've been living a lie yes it does mean we've been living a lie right. but that's okay as long as we're willing to correct it and uh it sort of reminds me of something uh, my former co-host when i was on sports center used to say all the time um my dear friend michael smith he mm-hmm. lived in boston for many years and he's, he used to say this whenever the city of boston would get up in arms because somebody called them racist and he said there's nothing more racist than when boston tries to prove it's not racist <laughs> <laughs> and he said that that's when the full racism comes out because their defense is often <laughs> in trying to prove they're not racist is, well, mm-hmm. yeah, we're racist, but I mean, come on, we're not Jackson, Mississippi. It's like, that's not a good thing. Like, that's not, that's not, <laughs> that's not that you, does not count. That does not that's, really say like, yeah, we're racist. We just not the most racist. And you're proud of this. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, whatever uh, gets you through, I suppose. But um, and so I, I feel it's the same way with with us as as a nation is that we want to believe that we're right. past something we haven't even dealt with. So it's it can be very mind boggling. Right. It is really like a like a post-it note that you write to yourself and you put it on your <laughs> on the bathroom mirror, mirror yes. and you go, yes, today's the day. Well, you're like, I am smart. I am charming. <laughs> yes, I am intelligent. And it's like, yeah, you're trying to. You know, it's like you got to you got to say it aloud and then maybe you'll believe it and maybe you'll actually act like these things. (laughs) That's right. That's that's your game face. Um, Okay, okay. Let's talk a little bit about ambition, if you will. Now, some Biden allies have complained that in the lead up to his announcing a VP that Kamala shouldn't be chosen because she's too ambitious. Oh, my goodness. My heart is fluttering. So, okay, by the time this airs, he may have made uh, his VP choice, and it may or may not be her. But regardless, how often have you been told that your ambition is a problem? Well, um, I I think, well, first of all, that's like 
super misogynistic and yes. um i don't know if oh, people just... understand how problematic that is to say yeah because these are things that would never be said about a man in, in kamala never. harris's position never would be said never. i think all women have faced some degree of this in the in the workplace but you also have to combine the racial element i mean we're talking about mm-hmm. a black woman and a lot of times in the workspace black women are labeled aggressive difficult and also too ambitious. It's like the combination of those things can be a really hard barrier to overcome, especially the difficult label. And usually the diff when I hear the difficult label, to me that's very coded language. Because generally right. when it, we're labeled that way, whenever we have the nerve to ask for something that a white man would get that they're very comfortable asking for in that space. And that's considered to be positive ambition and a, and a a sign that this person um, is somebody they want on the team and somebody Mm -hmm. that can be a leader. And women in general are just penalized for operating just like any man usually is able to do. You know, I, I, I have a long pages of criticisms of Joe Biden and Mm -hmm. this is, you know, among one of my many concerns about him is that he is in 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 the ways that matter. He's not more in the same, but in many ways he is more of the same. Right. He's just not as blatantly incompetent as what we have in office. And so it's <laughs> right. sort of like, OK, if Joe Biden's in office, I won't go to sleep wondering, well, tomorrow, you know, this will probably all be gone right now so i'm just gonna enjoy this right. time <laughs> you know you sure you, there are basic worries you will not have with joe biden that that are living reality with donald trump but like maybe you'll be able to sleep until 6 30 correct that's right i won't be you know worried about him starting uh world war three on twitter so sure. um so there are certain things you you won't have to worry about but yet i don't want people to misunderstand joe biden is very much a reflection of the current condition that we're in. I mean, very much so. It's like he, him uh, being put in this position to be the best that we could come up with to combat Donald sure. Trump says so much about the brokenness of, of our democracy mm-hmm. and of the people. And so seeing this story about Kamala Harris and how he doesn't want somebody too ambitious, I should be fair here. It's like, it's just a report and it's a lot of conjecture. And we don't know if Joe Biden really feels that way. However, we know there's some semblance of that because that picture got out that showed him his notes about what he had about Kamala Harris and some, uh, thought that to mean that, you know, this means he is going to pick her. But it was very interesting that the first thing on the list was don't hold grudges. And, you know, I I don't know if people understand this. A debate is competition. The whole point of it is to, frankly, expose your opponent. And the Mm -hmm. fact that there are people who think she's not on board because she had the nerve to actually want to be president and therefore expose him in a debate um, just says everything about how people still have a problem uh, with women in leadership. I mean, we saw it with Hillary Clinton. We've seen mm-hmm. it with a lot of the female presidential candidates. We saw it with Elizabeth Warren. I mean, it has been a thing. And as much as this country was going out of its way to pat itself on the back for electing Barack Obama, and it's certainly a significant historical moment to have elected a black president given you know American history, understand that Barack Obama still had male privilege. I mean, he may be a black man in America, but male privilege even exists for black men. With that being said, you know, you see how much harder it is still 
for this country to accept a woman in a certain power position. What does an ideal modern newsroom look like to you? So to me, any newsroom has to reflect the community it covers. And for that matter, Mm -hmm. um, it has to reflect the, the news that they're trying to relate to the world. As somebody who was in newspapers for many years, I never would have imagined that when I became a professional journalist in 1997, that the progress would have gone backwards. Never would have thought that the progress was actually better. I think when I was coming up as a a younger journalist, because there were natural pipelines into newsrooms that lent itself to more diversity than there is now with Mm -hmm. the explosion of digital media, it has become a barrier to more journalists of color. And part of the reason is that a lot of these startups have started from people who, um, you know, frankly, had the capital to start them. And the first thing they did was they went out and hired people that looked like them. They hired their friends. And so a lot of these digital newsrooms just have piss poor diversity because they have relied on the pipeline of word of mouth. And they have not done a lot of active recruiting to break these systemic barriers that lead itself to having a lack of diversity and inclusion. The modern newsroom should have queer people and trans people and LGBTQ people and black people who fit also within those same groups that I mentioned and Latino people, it should truly reflect, you know, the world that we live in because that's society. Unfortunately, newsrooms have failed. I mean, and, and a big reason is for lack of trying because at this point, they don't have any excuse. We've been talking about the same problem since the Kerner Commission discussed the lack of black journalists Uh, in newsrooms in the late 60s because there were no black journalists really covering the civil rights movements in mainstream media. And a lot of that began to change with the riots because, frankly, there was a lot of terrified white reporters who didn't want to go into black neighborhoods to report on why black people were rioting to begin with. So that was sort of the opening for more of us in the newsrooms. And to see that this problem has been discussed and talked about for so long And there's still companies that are purportedly struggling with this. I look at it now as intentional. I don't look at it as, oh, they're just a pro. No, it's intentional because it's funny how they have very little issues and unearthing very talented white people. And I noticed that on the recruitment level and the nurturing level and retention level, they just do not put in the same effort to find journalists of color. Right. I think about this all the time as anyone who has listened to any prior episodes of this podcast, I constantly talk about the gatekeepers of journalism and what it would take to undo that or open up those gates. And so much of it has to do with the old kind of like institutions of journalism and the the alliances that were formed at the college level of just like all these white dudes who got together and built these media empires and their rivalries reflect their college rivalries. And it's just so old and tired. And it does make me think about the world of sports and sports owners also, which is really almost monolithically white. Am I crazy? No, no, that's, that's, That's accurate. That's definitely accurate. Okay. (laughs) Will that system ever break down of old white owners to have like a world of sports that reflects the actual diversity of its players and fans? Like how do you get more people of color into the owner suites and in the front office? So a lot of people don't understand, and it's different by sport, about how ownership Mm -hmm. is actually achieved. So what you have is you have white owners voting on 
white owners. Whenever somebody is up for ownership, all the owners have to vote whether or not to let this person become a part of their circle. And they tend to vote for people who they know, (laughs) who look like them. Sure. A lot of the company are not the companies. A lot of the teams are also family owned and they pass them down. You know, you look at a team, say the Detroit Lions. I'm from Detroit. So Mm -hmm. the Ford family owns the Detroit Lions. There are seven Mm -hmm. billion Fords. Okay, trust me. The, the a dog in the family will own that team before that ever becomes up for ownership. So you have the <laughs> problem of white dudes voting on whether or not to let other white dudes in the club. You also have the other problem of the fact that these are family owned companies and these these families never give up these teams. Right. There is nothing to indicate that the Steelers won't be owned by the Rooney family forever. They bought this franchise, I think I read somewhere, for like $2,100. Okay, it's worth billions of dollars now. They are never giving this team up. So you don't have a lot of opportunities to do this. And when you do have a lot of opportunities, the list of people who are able to buy these teams is a mile long because this is something that everybody is trying to do. And the other part of it is that for anybody to own an NFL team, and I'm just using them as an example, but they kind of work the same way in every league, is that the team has to literally be a hobby, that they can't use that as their main income because that's who's buying teams now. You know, you you look at Robert Kraft, who owns the New uh, England Patriots. The the Mm -hmm. Patriots are just his toy. Like his real business is uh, he's a a, a company craft services that is, you know, an international conglomerate. Right. You know, Mark Cuban, uh, the Mavericks are just his toy. Like that's just something that he, you know, does on the scene. He takes it seriously. But the point is that you have to have that kind of capital where this billion dollar thing could just be a toy. And, And most of these guys, you know, they don't mind burning a lot of money on these teams because they frankly have it to spare. There has got to be an intention among the ownership groups and collectively as an ownership body to think more broadly about who are members of their team. So you're talking about teams that don't come up for ownership very often. And when they do, it's just a really long line. It's not about capital. It's about who do we want to represent this league? And people should also understand the commissioners they see for all these leagues they work for the owners, not the other way around. Okay, so right. it doesn't matter if Roger Goodell says we need more black ownership because Roger Goodell's right. not voting on that. Robert Kraft, Jerry Jones, these guys are. All right. And so as long as they and that's not to suggest that Robert Kraft has necessarily these these beliefs or any of them. But as long as that they continue to only look at owners that are basically like them, then it's going to be a lot of issues in getting a majority black owner in the most popular sport in America, the NFL. There is one in the NBA. You have Michael Jordan. And it says a lot about Mm -hmm. the league that this is somebody who, um, while it's been a while since Michael Jordan played, I mean, for an owner, I mean, he's relatively young and he was the face of the NBA for many years. And so for him to already be a majority owner in that league speaks to a different set of priorities they have in the NBA as opposed to the NFL. I'm just going to break for one sec and we'll be right back. During your career, have you felt that athletes have become more outspoken on social justice and politics or are people just more ready to listen? Well, it's gone through waves throughout my career because when I was first in sports journalism early in my professional career, there weren't as many outspoken athletes because 
they have been exposed to the global marketplace. Right. You know, when Michael Jordan during his heyday as a as a player, he turned the NBA into a global league. And he showed with his marketing appeal that a black man can be the face of Nike, can be the face of Gatorade, Hanes, all these other things. And Mm -hmm. the reason that he was able to be so revered in corporate culture is because not only was he the best player in the world, but he's also purposely apolitical. And so a lot of athletes followed that same model because they saw how much money Jordan was making. They said, oh, so the way to make more money is that I can't, I shouldn't say anything that will piss anybody off because then I can, whatever my political beliefs are, it will be left to people's imaginations and I can appeal to everybody. So that was a really long and significant wave. And frankly, it didn't really look like sports was coming out of that anytime soon. You would see pockets of certainly people speaking their mind, but they paid a significant price. Not that that stopped because you look at Colin Kaepernick. But when you look at somebody like Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who uh, was the NBA player who turned his back to the American flag during the national anthem, um, his career was destroyed. And they also tried to destroy his life, literally. I mean, his house was burned down um, and he faced an extraordinary amount of pressure and public rebuke. And even from the same NBA that is lauded now for being the progressive league, uh, they blackballed him. So those examples had an impact on players not wanting to speak up about racial injustice. I mean, a couple things have changed. One is that even though police brutality incidents, we've always known they've been there, but the advent of video and social media have made them more in your face than they were before. And so that was so jarring to a lot of professional athletes, a lot of people, period, but particularly to black professional athletes, many of which who very easily could see themselves being victimized in the same ways, who have had their own police brutality experiences. And that became a particular rallying cry. And even though Trayvon Martin, he didn't die at the hands of the police, he died at the hand of vigilante justice, much like we saw with Mm Ahmaud Arbery. That, to me, was the start of what you're seeing now was Trayvon Martin because you had LeBron James and the Miami Heat very vocally talking about what happened because they not only imagine it could happen to them, they think about their sons who they have in all white neighborhoods because of their wealth, who they have to protect even though they're their sons because if the wrong person sees their son and doesn't recognize them in those neighborhoods, they're either going to confront them themselves and it could wind up like George Zimmerman or they're going to call the police and that could be another incident. So you had that happen. You had a change in presidents and the tone of this president is so obviously boisterously and unapologetically racist. And I think that all collided with Colin Kaepernick. And so his protest really sparked something in a lot of these athletes and those who were speaking up, it made them bolder. And then you have Colin Kaepernick combined with LeBron James. So you have two of the most prominent athletes of this generation who have decided that they're going to marry their brands to something as serious as, you know, racial intolerance and equality. And that leads everybody else along. Cause when you see the, the guy who has the most, to lose because of his international popularity, because of his wealth and fame. If you see these guys putting it on the line, it inspires an entire community of black athletes to do the same. 
Right. I mean, even Michael Jordan now, is he not donating a huge amount of money to combat voter suppression? He is. And this is something, you know, this version of Michael Jordan is something that we've never really seen before. I mean, I, you know, I think we've all heard rumblings of how quietly he's given to some things, but he's being much more out front about how he is contributing to, you know, equality. And I think part of it now also is, uh, and this is not to suggest that in Jordan's case or LeBron or even Kaepernick or any athlete that it's disingenuous, but they have seen how from a positive branding standpoint, it actually can work for you. That it's actually something that will endear you to people. And even though you're going to get a lot of backlash and and a lot of hate, there's a component of this that puts you um, on a different stratosphere because people feel like they're rooting for someone who ultimately wants to do good for humanity. Right. I feel like Michael Jordan can weather the storm of criticism. I think so. I think he's all set financially. (laughs) He's all set. Okay. Tell me about your upcoming project with Colin Kaepernick. What brought you to that partnership because you're producing a docuseries right with Disney yes this is correct Um, okay I'm a producer on the team and honestly it happened completely haphazardly and uh, Mm -hmm. this was not something that was a part of some long executed plan so essentially it it went this way Um, for a little background my story and Collins started colliding into each other you know, frankly, because I was in sports. Right. I was, you know, on TV when he began his protest. And I was certainly in early on it uh, before it became popular to to kneel and uh, say that you support, you know, Colin Kaepernick. So there was that Mm -hmm. component of it. He, like you and like me, he also was called out by the president. The president tried to make him a political talking point. It worked quite well, which is why the NFL did not support Colin Kaepernick and why he remains blackballed even now. And so because we were, I guess, unified and being castigated by Donald Trump. And even when I was suspended from ESPN, Colin was one of the first athletes to speak up on my behalf. We just had this, you know, kind of collision course. And he called me and asked me my thoughts on him partnering with Disney and ESPN, because realize this Mm -hmm. is a very tricky thing for him in the sense of, I think it's fair to say that ESPN was one of the media outlets who was driving um, a lot of false narratives about his protest, for that matter, right. about who he was. I mean, they they played a part in it. So there was that component to it. Mm-hmm. And it's also he saw what happened with my relationship with ESPN. And even though I left there on my own terms, I wanted to leave mm-hmm. when I left. There's no question there was some awkwardness and some rockiness in my last year or so there and so he wanted to find out for me exactly what was he getting into like was this something that was worth it because you know Colin is um you know he's very aware that he needs to control his own narrative because it's spun out of control not only that he really is very committed to amplifying black voices and 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 being somebody who's all about the work in the community and being there for for marginalized people that is that is what he feels like he is called to do and he does not want to get in business with somebody who does not share his values so it was a value check when he called me to see like what was your situation he knows what he's read but he and I've never had a, a complete autopsy of everything that happened and I was 
I was honest with him. I was honest, but I was fair. I mean, I worked at ESPN for 12 years. It's the longest job I've ever had. It's the best job I've ever had. But they have issues like a lot of people do in corporate corporate media and corporations, period. They're not nearly as diverse in the executive ranks. They certainly have had a difficulty in retaining black folks and amplifying black folks. They have cowered. Um, when the the heat from the right wing got a little too hot. I mean, they have done these things. It's true. Mm-hmm. That being said, I thought that ESPN and Disney provided him with a very unique opportunity to really be a culture changer inside of those buildings and to present the type of content that would be successful in amplifying black people. I thought he could do it, and I thought it made sense to do it at ESPN, giving their marketing muscle, given where they stand in our culture and certainly Disney sort of um, uh, recommitting to making sure that they're part of the solution as opposed to being, you know, part of the problem. Like Bob Iger has been very vocal about how he wants to see systemic change. And so it was a perfect storm. So I left our conversation at that as just a meeting of, of him wanting to get some information, me providing that information. Well, then he calls me back and he said, I just thought of something that I think could work and would make me more comfortable about doing this. And he asked me to be a producer on his docuseries, which I jumped at the chance to do. And it was so it was never anything where Colin, uh, we it was some plan that was in the works for months. It literally happened right. in two phone calls. And I was like, right. yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely do it because. As a journalist, you live to chronicle history. It's what you do. You put it in a context mm. and you hope the next generation is able to understand something about this time that you lived in and especially a tumultuous time. And I right. wanted in on being able to help bring to light his real story because he deserved that after all that he's been through. He deserves the truth to be told about him. And it represented for me an exhilarating and exciting proposition. So even though... Again, things were very awkward with ESPN when I left. They were not contentious. They were awkward. I did not think whatever happened between me and ESPN really mattered in the bigger picture. There were much bigger things that are more important about this being done and done right and done on their platform that matter more to me than however was the state of our relationship. You are like the perfect person to come on as a producing partner. I mean, literally perfect because you understand everything on the ground there. Oh my God, it's going to be so exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, this is, yes. um, you know, I I said it on air before, you know, when it comes to his story, I was like, I know that for him it was a, and I don't think people understand what an extraordinary sacrifice that he's made and he didn't make it willingly. He was an outstanding college player. He's, been to a Super Bowl. He came within one underthrown pass of going to back back to back Super Bowls. He was very good at what what he did, and it was his dream to be a professional football player. And to have that taken away, not because you were injured, not because you did something to engineer your own demise, mm-hmm. that is something that I don't know. Most average people would not. It, that would be very difficult to swallow yeah. because to know that you just tried to bring attention to something that would better humanity and to pay that kind of price especially after what we know about history i mean we've been through this before i mean they tried to do it with muhammad ali they tried to do it Mm -hmm. uh it was done successfully 
blackballing um, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos for raising their fist at the 68 Olympics. Like we have really, we literally never learned from the mistakes that we've made in the past to know that he was blackballed because of those reasons, because he had the audacity to want America to be better. Right. Just really unfortunately says a lot about how we can be so late to the party. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about female athletes, if you will. Um, you know, the activism of female athletes, Maya Moore, Megan Rapino, routinely overshadowed by the, you know, undeniably admirable work of their male peers. It's not really a question. I don't really have a question, but it's more like a what the fuck. <laughs> like, is there a bigger, <laughs> is there a bigger role for female athletes in this shifting time? Well, I- I'm glad that you brought it up because, uh, you know, I, as we, I just spent a moment or so talking about Colin Kaepernick, what people probably forgot or just didn't know before Colin took a knee, Maya Moore and the Minnesota Lynx stood up against police brutality. That happened before right. he did. And they did it when it was not popular, mm-hmm. when it really cost them in their own community because the Lynx are, are in Minneapolis. That's where Philando yeah. Castile was murdered. And Mm -hmm. they spoke out against what happened to him. And the Minneapolis police, same police force that, you know, where the officer who killed George Floyd, they walked off of their post at the at the Lynx games and didn't want to deal with the team anymore because they had the nerve to actually question an unarmed black man being shot in his own car with his fiance. So these are women who do not get paid even a quarter, not even a tenth of what their male counterparts uh, are paid and so they have a lot more to lose and it's gonna hurt if they lose it. right but the thing is at the same time they're also used to fighting because a lot of these women have had to fight for respect their entire careers they've had to fight against patriarchy and fight against misogyny and you know they have to have, have had to fight for their own gender equity like they've had to they're used to doing this and that's why they're so good at it. And that's why they're naturals at it. Right. You know, because right. they've, they've had to do it their whole career to fight to be seen. Right. And so um, I think they have a very prominent role in this struggle that we have because they're going to do it boldly. I mean, for as much as many of the NBA players are doing things, the women are, are I mean, you, Maya Moore, perfect example. There is mm-hmm. no male basketball player who had her resume who would ever leave the sport to free an innocent man from prison. Not one. Right. I don't even see that happening. Not at all. I mean, we're talking about Maya Moore has one of the best basketball resumes in history, man or woman. I believe the freakish stat about her is that she's won a championship on every continent, but two. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, this woman is incredible. I mean, she is, she is the top player in the league. I mean, arguably at worst. Okay. She's top three and she ain't three. Okay. (laughs) However you want to slice it up for her to walk away from the game and say, you know what? Mm -hmm. It's more important that this young man who my family has befriended, he was unjustly in prison. I need to do whatever I can to get him out of jail and then to actually do it. (laughs) That's what's top of that. Yes. To actually do it. They lead with a different kind of boldness because they are accustomed to fighting for every bit of respect that they have. And I think that shows up in their activism. Do you think that issues of female athlete 
okay will be included in the current cultural overhaul because it like boggles my mind how little they get paid or just that the U.S. women's national soccer team is so, you know, that there's no pay equity is still it's unthinkable to me. Yeah, it's um, it's difficult to swallow. That's why what happened with the U.S. women's national team is is egregious and disgusting, because for so long, women athletes have been told that, well, if you just produce like the men or if you're just as popular as the men, then, you know, there's no problem with you getting equitable pay. And Mm -hmm. they're what do you know? They're more popular. (laughs) Okay, they certainly win a lot more. All right. I mean, Uh like it ain't even close in that regard. Yeah, they are everything that women were told they had to be to deserve equity and they still can't get it. So what does that say? It's pretty shameful. Unfortunately, the closest that we have to some equity and a lot of it, as I said, women used to fighting for their own dignity and respect is tennis. And a lot of that is because who fought for equal prize money? The Williams sisters. That's who fought for it. Right. And they've been carrying their own sport. Right. And this, not just women's tennis. They've been carrying American tennis for literally two decades. These two, these mm-hmm. two women. And so, yep. yeah, they do deserve it. And that's the closest that we've come to seeing what equity kind of looks like. Right. I hope we get to a point where there is more pay equity. And even with the WNBA, what people never understood when they talked about pay equity, they were not saying that the number one pick in the WNBA should make as much as the NBA's number one pick. What they were saying is that they deserved a bigger piece of what was coming into the WNBA because their popularity was exploding. And that seems fair to me. Yeah, it's fair. It's definitely fair. But I think people also have to understand, look, men's sports have all gone through their droughts. They've gone through financial challenges. They've gone through popularity challenges. I mean, the NBA was on tape delay before Magic Johnson. Tape delay. All right. right? Right. This was not what you see it is now, but they had such a significant head start over the WNBA, which came along in modern times. People forget that Title IX wasn't passed until the late 70s. All right. And so when you look at where we are with female athletes from Title IX till now, there's been a lot of progress. But what shouldn't happen is that you can't compare what's happened over the last 40-ish years to men's sports who have been well-established for like 70 or 80 years. Like you just can't do that. And I find that they make those comparisons not because they're trying to actually make some kind of grander point, but to purely disrespect women. Right. I hope that they're able to overcome this enormous challenge because I mean, they're just reflective of what we see in society. There's still a pay equity right. issue in our society. And, and yes. what does that say is that, Oh my God, how long we've we been talking <laughs> about this and women still aren't paid as much as men yeah. for the same job. Yeah. How do what do you think about professional sports coming back amid the coronavirus? Are we putting players too much at risk? Like we seem to be prioritizing the return of live sports at the cost of players perhaps Uh, we don't know by the time we air this who knows what will happen with the MLB who knows yeah I mean I don't think there's any question and and so it kind of goes along what I was saying earlier about the uh the American PR campaign fully at work we have (laughs) had literally of a developed nation probably the most incompetent response to this virus I mean all right like pretty easy it's been us Mm -hmm. but yet we're acting like we have it and we've just decided you know what even though we have 
this virus raging and ravaging our country and people are still dying. We're just going to pretend like we could just come back. It's like, that's not how this works. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of mixed success in professional sports. My biggest worry is what happened with college players. It's one thing if professional athletes choose not to play or they decide to play because they're professionals and they're paid. College Mm -hmm. athletes are at the mercy of the schools and Right. What we see happening in college football is just absolutely dishonorable and unethical that you will have a number of situations where there won't be actual students on campus except for the players. And, except for the and players. that's unacceptable because you're, yeah. you've just proven because realize people have to understand that when it comes to paying college athletes, the NCAA's big argument is that they're student athletes and not employees. Well, if they're not employees, why are they having to come back to their sport? (laughs) Right. If they're just students like you guys have told us, why do they have to play? Because Mm -hmm. the students don't have to go to class in in many campuses, but they have to come because the the most colleges and some of this has to do a lot of this has to do with, frankly, um, our higher education uh, uh, issue in this country, period, about the lack of funding and all that. They have become completely reliant on college sports to drive income and generate income. And they can't have them missing games because it will put universities in further peril, which, again, sounds a lot like an employee worker relationship. And that sounds like you're an employee. And not Mm -hmm. to mention we're dealing with college kids. I mean, I think it was Clemson. They had 37 people test positive. 37. Oh, my God. It's just like, why are you coming back for what? And you've had a number of schools that are in this situation that have had dozens of players testing positive. And when you're dealing with young people who, unfortunately, they listened to one message early on that was so incorrect in this entire pandemic. And unfortunately, it's been reinforced by um, the president and many of his incompetent lackeys. Young people really think they can't get this or that if they do, it's no big deal. And so their behavior has reflected that. And so you're dealing with that age group and you're expecting them to be disciplined and it's not going to work. And what we have seen that does work is something that's just not possible for everybody. The NBA has restarted, but that involved them putting every single player in a bubble in Orlando. Okay. Right. <laughs> and, yes. and having incredible testing protocols on a daily basis, you know, mass quarantining. It took a lot of effort. And the NBA, since the bubble started, has not had one positive test. But that model doesn't work for all sports because you can't sequester thousands of college football players and put them in one bubble. You can't do this with Major League Baseball, which has seen rampant outbreaks of COVID. And at some point, these guys are going to go home and they're going to have to be in their regular lives. And much like many of us have done who aren't professional athletes, they aren't always the most disciplined when it comes to how they behave in this pandemic. So worrying. You know, we're looking at a situation where I said that there's just going to be mixed success. Yes. This was incredible. I God, I love talking to you. (laughs) Oh, Um, I'm going to ask you one last question and then we can be all done. Which active athletes do you think could plausibly have a future in politics? Like, will LeBron James be our first dunking president? (laughs) (laughs) That'd be interesting. Be the tallest one ever, right? Tallest, yes. No, here's my athletic 
prediction. It's it's loose okay. because if this is somebody who did play um, at a high level, but they just aren't a current player. I think the next president with a sports background is The Rock by far. Ah. My money is on The Rock to be, I think he's going to be president one day. Okay. He played uh, college football at Miami for those who, who may not know that. Um, he's clearly built like a professional sure. athlete. I mean, sure. <laughs> right. Can't, I, I, I'm telling you, this is impossible. You have nobody, everybody in their lives, go poll everybody in your family, friends. Nobody dislikes the rock. Not one person. That's true. Not, That's you, true. I've never run into anybody who said, you know, who I can't stand the rock. Yeah. No. Okay? <laughs> he is, he is, um, he's multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. We don't really know his politics, yeah. which I think is key mm-hmm. because he's somebody. And I think to some degree, you know, people who've had success in politics figure this out. People who are trying to, who aren't career politicians, I should say, is that The Rock is so universally beloved that he mastered what Michael Jordan did. He's apolitical, though he does, he certainly has taken a stance against some things, but there are things that everybody can kind of get behind. Right. You know, it's like people who take a stand against cancer. It's like, nobody's going to say, disagree with that, right? It's right. like, <laughs> he's able, he has that welcoming spirit, the ability to unite people. You don't know his politics. So even if you're a hardcore Republican or a hardcore Democrat, you just imagine the Brock might carry the same beliefs that you that you have because he's never done anything to prove that he hasn't. So it's perfect. Well, he'll definitely get Elizabeth Warren's vote. <laughs> is it not so crazy that her favorite show is Ballers? That's what her I'm saying. It's like Ballers. There's something about The Rock that is <laughs> infectious. And I truly believe, and he's hinted at this, so this is not completely out of thin air, that he might right. have his mind on politics later on because, you know, he's, again, he's got that, that universal appeal that he could act, I don't think he can run on him as, as currently constructed, but he could run it on either ticket, and I don't think he'd have a problem with bringing the whoever's ticket he didn't run on over to his side because he has that kind of, personality when i was at espn he was one of the most beloved celebrities to come through there because he would uh-huh. meet you one time and remember your name and come back three years later and still know who you were and something about you that is oh boy that's i'm just saying that's real presidential that's a, that's a very winning quality definitely yes oh, thank you so much this was wonderful I love talking to you. Same here. And uh, all the mental health well wishes as well as we all deal with this pandemic. I hope you have a wonderful vacation (laughs) and that it truly is a retreat for you. And you get on that beach and you have a glass of wine and the whole thing just unfolds perfectly. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. (sighs) Oh, my God. She's great. I love listening to her. I think you could have gone on forever. Totally. I think it's fair to say that we'll just have her back next week also. Yep. Perfect. Do you feel like a jock now? I do. You know what? (laughs) I surprised myself by knowing some things about sports. You hung in there. You surprised us. We kept texting each other. We couldn't believe how your segues were so good. Well, through (laughs) osmosis, I seem to know a few things about a few sport things. And I can't believe she announced that The Rock is running for president on our show. It's so exciting. We've never had a presidential announcement. I've always thought the idea of him running was silly until she just ran through all that stuff. And I was like, it kind of checks out. Same. <laughs> Same. He is universally beloved. And like, how do you attack The Rock? 
I have been I have been sort of generally resistant to the idea of the rock running, but Jamel Hill convinced <laughs> me that it's an okay choice. <laughs> You're endorsing. I endorse fully. Oh, we got an announcement and an endorsement <laughs> in one episode. This is huge for us. Warren and the Rock 2028. Yeah. How could you hate the Rock? He's a really nice guy, very kind. Okay. Not bad on the eyes either. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll say it, whatever. I'll say it. Okay, here we go. Are you ready to segue into real or fake? Where we take comments from the bowels of our YouTube channel, and I guess whether they are real comments that a real human person typed into their computer or phone, or if it was Adam and Svia trying to trick me. Are you ready? And Are you guys ready? Yeah, 17 to 7. So Svea and I have a huge deficit. To you make up right really, now. really do. Okay. I have not read these yet. <laughs> I'm reading them in real time. Okay. <laughs> this is what people mean when they say women aren't funny. I think that's real. Whoa. <laughs> a point for us. Okay. I channeled something on that one. You did. <laughs> okay. I don't believe it. But to be clear. No, it's fair. Okay. <laughs> you got us. We aren't. <laughs> oh, okay. Wake up, sheeple. No one cares what your show has to say. I think that's fake. Oh! <laughs> you got cocky on that one. Okay. What gave that one away? Well, I do love the ear. Yeah, and I know that, that you guys know that I love the ear. <laughs> you shouldn't have told us. Oh, I know. You're so good. <laughs> okay. okay. Why is she standing like that? That feels real. A lot of people hate the way I stand. <laughs> It is. I don't know what, what's wrong with the way you stand. I feel like the parents in our yeah. office really, like really? the parents of our colleagues. That that was like the main comment. The parents? Yes. Uh, yeah, parents really don't like standing for some reason. Parents really care about posture? I feel like it comes from the same place of, I don't know, my parents are always like, it's the same price to sit. Oh. Oh, so they want you sitting. Sitting. Like behind a desk? I don't know. I, there's something. Like the way the said, men I've do said, it. I've said no, too much. I mean, the way the men late night hosts do it. I guess it's just, uh, I'm kind of like my legs are spread a little bit and I'm kind of pitched forward. <laughs> Maybe that's irritating. I, I really don't know. There's a lot of, I guess when you're on TV, people just find a thing that they hate. They don't like the way I stand <laughs> and my hand gestures also. <laughs> And maybe my chin. I don't know. There's a general. Okay. Well, we could go back and ask for some explanations. Oh, no. We'll respond to the comments. <laughs> go confront these we're people. Gonna, we're going to be flooded with. Here's why it's bad that you're standing that way. Okay. Here's another comment. No laughter proves how unfunny woke comedy is. No laughter. Oh, no. Oh, because there's no laughter. Oh, is this like when you watch a show and you take the sound, the 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 laugh track out, and it seems like I'm a drama? I'm assuming they mean, yeah, like you're. Well, right now you're recording without an audience. I have no so audience. Just that may be what they're referring. Chattering to. squirrels. Okay, I think it's real. Okay, okay, okay. Um, TBS must be losing so much money with this establishment trash. L O L O L. L-O-L-O-L-O-L. L-O-L-O-L-O-L. Hmm. I think that's fake. It's real. Okay. I like it. Establishment. I just like when people read out 
L-O-L-O-L. It's very Okay. Only good argument for wearing a mask is it'll shut you up. Hmm. Only good argument for wearing a mask is it'll shut you up. Interesting. I could go either way on this one. There's no uh, punctuation in it. And you is spelled with just a U. I think you guys are trying to trick me into saying that it's real. So I'm going to say it's fake. I love your reasoning. <sighs> oh, my God. <laughs> that was wild. That was like, like some Perot. Perot. Just deducing all this, this stuff. Is so good. I don't care for that. <gasps> Oh, I love this. Right. The deduction after is fantastic. It's like, it is exhilarating for me <laughs> to get it right. I don't know why. That <laughs> says a lot about my mental state. <laughs> I hope you liked my podcast. If you did, let me know in the comments. If you didn't, please consider hate listening in the future. Seriously, though, please rate, review, and subscribe to Full Release and email us your feedback at fullrelease at sambi.com. Let me know who I should be talking to about this insane moment that we're living in and what I should talk to them about, or just let me know what an amazing job you think I'm doing. But honestly, if you don't email us, it's just going to be letters from my dad asking for the Netflix password. And see you next Tuesday for another Full Release. This podcast was produced by Adam Howard and Svia Baron-Reinstein. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by Samantha B. What? That's me. Stay safe out there. Oh, my God. I never watch YouTube videos. I just don't. I just don't care. But the kids... That's such a weird brag. <laughs> it's not a brag. I don't know. I never watch um, them. People I don't like, listen to that. I don't, I don't even care that. about that. It's just I'm always like... Just like two years later, people will go... I'll, I'll be like, I watched that. I finally watched that Honey Badger. Don't give a shit video. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what?